Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Big congratulations to the pastoral team for getting out of Matthew 12. And we're in 13 this morning. How many of you like secrets? Okay, don't lie. How many of you like secrets? Okay, why? Why do we all like secret information? Like if I said to you, hey, you want to know what I did yesterday? You'd be like, I don't care, but I'm supposed to care, so sure. But if I said, hey, you want to know what I did yesterday? What's everyone going to do? I said the same thing, same information, same content, and yet I drew you in just because of a whisper and the prospect of knowing a secret. To possess special information, to, to be on the inside, to know a secret makes us feel special, makes us feel proud. It gives us a sense of belonging and connectedness that we are better than other people because we know something that everyone else doesn't know. What I want to show you this morning is that Jesus is inviting you into a secret, and it's a secret that does not actually lead to arrogance and pride, but actually is a secret that does the exact opposite, that brings humility and joy. What is that secret? That secret is in Matthew chapter 13, verse 11. And Matthew chapter 13 is an entire chapter dedicated to seven parables about one theme, and that one theme is the kingdom of God. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to unpack Matthew chapter 13, and today is just kind of an introduction to Matthew 13, so that when we come to look at what the parables actually mean, we have the proper context and understanding. So when we look at the parable of the four soils, if you grew up in the church, you've heard weird things like one out of four people become Christians. Or this is a message about how you go and preach and evangelize. What I want you to know is that is not what Jesus is talking about. He's actually talking about one theme throughout the entire chapter, and he actually says it's a secret. And what is that theme? It's the kingdom of God. Would you read with me? I'm going to read an extended section, Matthew chapter 13, 1, all the way down to verse 17. That same day, Jesus went out to the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat on it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he scattered, scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no roots. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear. Pause. You're on a boat with Jesus and he just says, hey guys, here's four soils. Have a good day. What are you thinking? What are you talking about? Thank you. So the disciples say, same thing I would say, verse 10. Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Can't you just tell us what you want to mean? Like, just say what you want to say. And we replied in verse 11, and here's where we're springboarding this morning. It says, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. And here he quotes the Old Testament. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear, understands. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll ever be hearing, but never understanding. You'll ever be seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts become calloused. They hardly hear their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Because otherwise, they might see their eyes, hear their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus says to his disciples, but blessed are your eyes, because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This morning, I want to talk to you about the secrets of the kingdom and understanding what Jesus is actually helping the disciples to understand and perceive so that you and I would actually understand and perceive what the secrets of the kingdom of God are. So would you pray with me, Father, we need your help. We need the Spirit to give understanding and illumination and uh, our minds and our hearts to be transformed to see the beauty of the kingdom of God. This is not something we can do on our own. It is something that you reveal to us. And so I pray, Father, that as your children, as sons and daughters of the Most High God, that you will help us to be people who understand the kingdom, who dwell in the kingdom, as we've read earlier, who seek the kingdom of God first. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Chapter 13 tells seven parables about the kingdom of God. In fact, every one of the parables says at the beginning, the kingdom of heaven is like blank. And this is not a new topic for Jesus. The kingdom is Jesus' central message. We speak about this often, but when Jesus came to the earth and all of his teaching was not about how if you just pray a prayer and ask for your sins forgiven, you'll go to heaven. In fact, you will not see Jesus make that proclamation in the gospels. He has a much different proclamation, a proclamation that's bigger and grander than just a prayer to access the heavenly throne room. His primary reason for coming was the kingdom of God. In fact, Matthew talks about the kingdom of God 54 times. It's almost two times a chapter. It's 124 times in the gospels. The book of Acts is bookended by the kingdom of God. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, Jesus spent 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God. And you go to the very last verses of Acts, chapter 28, verses 30 and 31, and Paul is in a house arrest and he's teaching about the kingdom of God. The entire book of Acts is about the kingdom of God. Paul's letters, 
the general letters use kingdom language over and over in the book of Revelation uses it seven times for a total of over 150 times in the New Testament the kingdom of God is talked about. And when Jesus shows up on the scene in Matthew chapter 3 on the next slide, we see in chapter 3 verse 2, he says, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. And so Jesus went on to begin to preach and teach and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went throughout all Galilee and the synagogues proclaiming the good news, the gospel, the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people of God. Jesus proclaimed and demonstrated that the kingdom of God is here. And now he's telling the disciples there's a secret about this kingdom. What is Jesus talking about? I think we need to start with just basics. And the basic is simply this. Let's define the word kingdom. If I were to ask you to define the kingdom of God... How would you actually define that term? If you are familiar with that term, if you've grown up in the church, been familiar with the church, the kingdom of God, kingdom is everywhere. Kingdom life, kingdom books, kingdom everything, kingdom evangelism, everything is about the kingdom. And yet none of us, when I say us, I should just be nice. A lot of us don't really even know what the kingdom actually is. For many people, the kingdom of God is equated with heaven. The kingdom of God is like heaven or heavenly things. The kingdom of God is not heaven. A lot of people speak about the people being the kingdom. What's the kingdom of God? It's the people of God. And what I want you to know is that the people themselves are not the kingdom. The kingdom is not living according to God's standards. The kingdom is not right living. When we say seek the kingdom, a lot of us think about seek holiness. Don't break the Ten Commandments. And of course, that's part of what the kingdom life looks like. But that in itself is not the kingdom. The kingdom is not necessarily a place. It will have a place. It will have appeal. And, uh, sorry, it will have a place. It will have a people. It will have an ethic. It will have a morality. But none of those things in and of themselves actually is what the kingdom of God is. So what is the kingdom of God? If you haven't found out yet, today you're going to get hit with a fire hose about the kingdom, and next week we'll try to make it more applicable, okay? Like true to your life, okay? So if you like theology, today's your day. If you like application, come back next week, okay? So that's how this is going to break up. This is a two-part sermon, and every good, fun piece that makes you feel better is next week. The kingdom of God, I'm going to define it this way, and I'm going to break it apart for us as we go through the rest of the time together this morning. The kingdom of God is, on the next slide, the dynamic reign and rule of God over all creation. It is dynamic, it is a rule and a reign, and it's over all of God's creation. Why do I use the word dynamic? Because dynamic has this idea of energetic and forceful. It's on the move. As, as C.S. Lewis would say, Aslan is on the move. This kingdom is not a static, stationary, immovable thing. It is a moving, active energy, if you will. It is this forceful thing that is taking place. This is why Nate did a great job in week 17 of the 42 weeks in uh, Matthew 12, talking about Jesus coming and forcefully taking over the bad man, the evil man's house. 
The reality is that the kingdom of God is dynamic. It's moving. It's energetic. It's forceful. The kingdom of God primarily has to do with a rule, a reign, an authority, a sovereignty in which someone is exercising authority. And in this place, we know it's God who is exercising his energetic, dynamic rule. And he wants to exercise that dynamic rule where? You pray the Lord's Prayer. Just on earth as it is where? In heaven. God exercises his sovereign rule over all of creation. And that rule is permanent. That rule is unending. That rule is unrivaled. That rule is unchallenging. That rule is never going to change. But God's intention was to always take that kingdom, that rule, that reign in heaven, and to bring it down to earth. That is the kingdom of God, for God to come and unite the heaven and the earth and to make what is done in heaven the way that that is to be done here on earth. Yet Jesus' kingdom that he is bringing in Matthew is not the kingdom the Jewish people expected, let alone the disciples expected. And I think if we're going to understand the secrets that Jesus is proclaiming about the rule and reign of God over all of creation, we need to understand the Old Testament mindset, the Old Testament expectation, and what the Old Testament is actually teaching about the kingdom of God, so that when Jesus shows up on the scene and says, here's the kingdom, what he's actually proclaiming. And so as we look through the Old Testament story, we begin with what I'm just going to call kingdom initiation. The kingdom began in creation. God created Adam as the ruler over this earth, as the ruler over this world. And he gave Adam and Eve a a mission to actually, we're going to just say it simply, to build and establish God's kingdom on earth. This was Adam's mission. He was to expand the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth. He was to prepare the world for God's arrival. He was to build the earth and to build God's palace, to build God's kingdom on this earth. And when Adam and Eve had actually accomplished that task, God would have come down and dwelled with his people and God's presence, his rule and reign over all of creation would have come down and made, been made permanent. But God's rule and reign was not made permanent in Genesis chapter one and two. How do I know that? Because it was lost. If God's rule and God's reign was permanent, it could never be lost. Just, why, just as it is permanent in the heavens and no one is going to challenge him and that will be uninterrupted, we can come to see that that rule and that reign had not yet fully come to the earth because sin had happened. Sin occurred. And so we see the second part of the kingdom understanding for the Jewish people is that this kingdom, this rule and reign of God was forfeited. It was stolen in the rebellion. Adam in a sense, handed the car keys of creation over to the serpents when he gave in to the temptation. And the temptation of the serpent was not just to trick him and be like, hey God, I tricked him, ha ha. No, it was to actually say to God, not only did I trick him, but I took over his authority. I now rule over your good earth. And so we see in 
Deuteronomy 32, this is Theology Night stuff, so if this like intrigues you, that's just a you know, cliffhanger for you to come to Theology Night in June. But we read in Genesis chapter 10 and Deuteronomy chapter 32 that what God actually did is that he gave all the nations up. He disinherited the nations. And he then allowed the serpent and all the spiritual forces to actually have control and authority over all of the earth. And what does God do in Genesis chapter 12, the very next chapter? He says and calls to Abraham, I'm going to inherit you. You're going to be the means by which my kingdom on earth will come. And so we see number three, the kingdom promise. God promised to bring the kingdom to fulfillment through the nation of Israel. This is what the story of Israel is all about. It's not about a bunch of rules for you to obey. It's not a bunch of like warnings for parents to tell your kids to eat vegetables. If you don't, God's going to open up the earth and swallow you. It is not a moral story. It is not a book just about wise tales. It's a story of a nation who God is going to use to bring about his kingdom. And there's much we could do, but I've limited myself to five points about the kingdom promise in the Old Testament. What we see, first of all, on the next slide, I have all five for you, but we're going to kind of walk through each one of these a little bit slowly, is number one, we're going to see that this kingdom will come through a Davidic heir. I have it for you on the slide. It might be tough for you to read, but uh, you can also turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 if you want. We're going to kind of work our way through some Old Testament passages together. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, the prophet Nathan is speaking to uh, David, and he wants to build a palace, a temple for Yahweh. And Samuel says he can't do it. I'm sorry, not Samuel. Nathan tells him he can't do it. But he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring and succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And church, who would we say that is? Who is the immediate fulfillment of that promise? Solomon, correct? All right. He is the one who will build a house for my name, who built God's temple, his house, Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this fulfillment is not just for the next son of David, but he's actually promising the next son of David, Solomon, that Solomon's throne would actually last forever. And I will be like a father to him, and he will be my son when he does wrong, I'll punish him with floggings inflicted by my human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. But David, know this. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What we see is that this passage actually is picked up by Jesus and the New Testament writers that the throne of David and the reason that God could actually promise David an everlasting throne, a forever throne, is because there is going to be a descendant from David who comes and rules and reigns forever. So why is David so important? Because it is through him 
that someone is going to come and bring God's kingdom to fulfillments. So number one, we see that Jesus is from the line of David. He will be the king who comes from him, who will establish God's eternal kingdom. Number two, this kingdom, when it comes, will destroy all other kingdoms. Daniel chapter two tells a story of a king, Nebuchadnezzar, who had a dream And he was so disturbed by this dream that he went to all of his chief wise men and magicians and said to his magicians, you tell me the dream that I had last night and you tell me what it means and I will give you immense wealth, immense power. Anything you want, you can have. All the magicians and the wise men, it says in Daniel chapter two, were like, that's not fair. No one can do that, King Nebuchadnezzar. Just tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, no, you've been lying to me all these times. You're gonna actually tell me what my dream was or I'm gonna kill all of you. Civil rights didn't really work. United Nations didn't exist. The king just killed people at will and said, you know what? This is the deal. So they're all like, packing their bags and running. And as they're running, King Nebuchadnezzar sends his chief, um, you know, chief guard, Arioch, to go out and kill all the wise men. Well, you know who one of those wise men was? It was Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And as Arioch comes to Daniel and Daniel says, you know, Eric says, I gotta kill you. And Daniel's like, no, you don't. He's like, yeah, I do. The king said so. He's like, why? Because he, no one can interpret his dream and you're a wise man, so I gotta kill you. And Daniel's like, tell the king, Actually, let me go to the king, and Daniel says, can you give me a night? And if you remember the story, Daniel that night with his three friends prays, and God reveals the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had to Daniel, and he begins to recount that dream back to Nebuchadnezzar, and the dream is of an immense statue, and the statue had a head of gold, it had a bronze and uh, arms of silver, and it had like a, a stomach and legs of bronze, and it had feet or like shins of iron, and, and then the last fifth part was like an iron and clay mix of feet. And so you had this massive statue with gold, silver, bronze, iron, and iron and clay mix from head to toe. And then he says, if you study Bible prophecy, you know this, but what you don't know oftentimes is this, is that the rest of the dream is that Daniel says there's a stone that no one made that's gonna come out of a mountain, come rolling down the mountain and smash that statue to pieces. And that stone is another kingdom representing another kingdom that will come and destroy all the other kingdoms and no kingdom will actually be able to destroy that kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar says, great, that's the dream. Tell me what it means. And he says to Daniel, says, this is what it means. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. You're the first kingdom that rules over everything. But know this, after you, there's going to come an inferior nation to you that's going to come over and take over the worlds. We know that nation probably to be Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. And the next moving down is the Greek Empire, the, 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 the iron legs. No, the bronze, sorry, the bronze. And then the iron legs, most people attach to Rome. Then the last one of like the iron and mixed clay, people say it's the Antichrist kingdom, okay? My point today is not to do the Bible prophecy stuff, okay? That's another theology night. If you get really excited about that, meet me in the corner and we'll have a great discussion. But my point is, is 
Daniel then says this in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established at the highest of the mountains. Do you know why mountains are so important? Mountains are where the gods lived. Mountains where the gods dwelled. And when Daniel says that God's mountain is the highest of all mountains, what's he proclaiming? He's the highest of all gods. So in the last days, the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It'll be exalted above all the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Oh my goodness, I'm reading the wrong passage. Why didn't someone stop me? Daniel 2, 44 and 45. You guys are too nice. Just, to, just be like, hey, stupid, you're reading the wrong passage, okay? This is a good done faster. Daniel 2, in the time of those kings, I actually I was reading through, I'm like, this sounds like Isaiah. And I looked down, I'm like, it's Isaiah. That's embarrassing. <laughs> Daniel 2, here's what Daniel actually says at the, end of the, at the end of the time of Nebuchadnezzar. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It'll never be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring it to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. When Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm the son of David, and I'm coming to usher in God's kingdom, guess what the people are thinking? Sweet. Here comes the stone that's going to come and smash Rome. This is what they're thinking. Number three, the third promise of the Old Testament is that the kingdom of God will be centered upon righteousness in Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter two, as I began to read so greatly for you, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It'll be exalted above the hills and nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. There's coming a day when the kingdom of God comes and destroys all the other kingdoms through this Davidic error that all the nations are going to stream and come to this kingdom and have a time of peace and joy and righteousness. Judgment will be done according to righteous standards. Judgment will take place in which the evil are actually punished and the free are set free where the people who are oppressed and the people who are downtrodden, the people who are cast out of society will be brought and given a seat at the table with the high and the mighty and the rich. It'll be a time of absolute righteousness and the nations will flock to it. Number four, this kingdom is not just gonna be a time of righteousness, it's gonna be a time of great rejoicing. Isaiah 25 speaks of it this way, on this mountain, the high mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. 
On this mountain, he'll destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all the nations. That, that phrase right there is just super dynamic and powerful. But just think this, that there is actually this shroud and this, this like veil that is over all of the nations. And one day, God is just going to remove that veil. And when he removes that veil, he's going to swallow up death forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he'll move his people's disgrace from all of the earth. Why? Because the Lord has said so. The kingdom will be a time of great celebration because there's no more death. There's no more separation. There's no more time where we're separated from ourselves and each other and experiencing separation from God. We'll be feasting. A time where whoever your greatest chef is, is just sitting there because he doesn't even compare to what God is giving. The kingdom will be a time of great rejoicing. But number five, the kingdom will involve the empowering presence of the spirits. We've looked at this throughout Matthew when the spirit of God descends upon Jesus and the spirit of God actually giving Jesus life and energy to actually do his miracles. But here's what the Old Testament promised. In Ezekiel chapter 36, it says, I will take you out of the nations because God's going to send them away. I'm going to bring you all back. And I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. And I'll cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all your idols. And I'll give you a new heart. And I'll give you a new spirit. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you'll live in the land I gave your ancestors. Then you will be my people and I will be your God. See, the reason there's going to be a time of great celebration is because the Spirit of God is going to actually change the hearts of God's people so they actually obey and love God and love each other. And the idols will be cast down, no more worshiping anything other than God himself. So Jesus, when he steps on the scene and says the kingdom of God is here, people are expecting what? A stone. stone To come and smash Rome. Many people say whether it's true or not, it makes sense. This is why Judas kept hanging around. That's why the crowds kept hanging around. And now the crowds are following Jesus and the, crowd, the religious leaders aren't very excited about him anymore because they're taking away, he's taking away their power and fame and exercising authority over them. We're going to come to see is that after Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is on a downward trek to the cross. The crowds become less and less and less. Why? Because the rock that they thought was supposed to come had not come. Jesus was not the only one who self-acclaimed messiahship. There were several other messiahs throughout the last 400 years of Israel's history of people who showed up and said, I'm the messiah. Rome killed them. They're not the messiah. Jesus shows up on the scene and he's doing way more than all those other people and people are sticking around for a while because this might be the rock But I think it's also important to understand not just their expectation of what this would be, but the expectation of how it would come to be. 
the Jewish expectation of the kingdom was according to how they structured life. And I have on the next slide for you a picture of, way, of the way they structured their life. Okay, like we do this in our day. We have B.C. and A.D., right? You ever heard, like, that's how we structure life. If you're in college right now or doing any sort of ac academic work, you may not see B.C. and A.D. anymore. You see B.C.E. and C.E. Have you run across that yet? It's before the Common Era and the Common Era. They're trying to get rid of Jesus, but he's still the one that's the distinction between the two. So it's, at least you got rid of the Latin word domini, Lord. So congratulations. But this is how the Jewish people do it. They didn't do it like B.C. and A.D. They understood time in this sense, that there was a time in 1 Corinthians 1 that was before the ages, that before the world even began was the time before the ages that God had a plan, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 1, speaks of a time where this tri triune God and his divine counsel came up with a plan. And then when he made the earth... The Jewish people understood this to be the present age. We looked at this a couple weeks ago when Jesus says, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven when? In this age, the present age, or what? The age to come. So now or in eternity. This is how they looked at time. That they lived according to this age. Paul calls this age in Galatians 1, this present evil age. Why is this age evil? Because as we saw, it has now been given over to a ruler who is the serpent, who is ruling over everything and spreading his evil across the earth. And the Jews were longing for and waiting for the time when the Messiah would come, who would destroy all the other nations, would bring justice to the earth, who would bring celebration to all of his people in a time where the Spirit of God would empower all of the people of God to do what is right. And this, for the Jewish people, was what the age to come was. Please understand this part. Salvation for the Jewish people was always associated with the age to come. When would God save Israel? When would God redeem Israel? When would God bring redemption to Israel? In the age to come. And so the question is, is what would mark the distinction, the division between this age and the age to come? Every Jewish writer, even in the Old Testament era of like non-scriptural writings, believed that this division would come through a cataclysmic war. Through a cataclysmic event where some Messiah figure, some divine man would come and actually destroy everything all at once and bring in God's kingdom. So it was a one-time event. May not be, it might be longer than a day, like no one knew how long it would take, but it'd be a one-time event where God's kingdom, God's rule, God's rule would come in and smash all the other kingdoms so that God's kingdom is the only kingdom at play. Are you with me? Let's take a deep breath. This is what Jesus' disciples expected. This is what the Jewish crowds expected. And they're beginning to say to Jesus, when are you going to destroy Rome? What are we doing here? You keep healing people. That's neat. But there's this guy over there. His name is Herod. We need to get rid of him too. And Jesus 
comes to Matthew chapter 13, and he says to the disciples, I'm going to tell you a bunch of parables. Because these parables are going to reveal something about the kingdom of God that has not yet been made known. This is something brand new, in a sense. It is something that God kept hidden in the past, but now that I am here, I am making known to you. And maybe we'll do this next week, but the Greek word here for secret is actually mystery. The mysteries of the kingdom. There's other places in the New Testament that mysteries are actually talked about. Anyone think of a mystery in the New Testament? Behold, I tell you a mystery. In the moment of twinkling eye, we'll all be changed. The fact that we'd experience physical resurrection when Jesus comes back was something that was kind of hidden in the Old Testament now that Jesus has actually raised from the dead and the disciples got to see his glorified resurrected body. That is now like, oh my goodness, that's what resurrection is. And Paul says that's a mystery. The church is a mystery. There's like five different mysteries in the New Testament. One of the mysteries is the kingdom of God. So the question is, is what is Jesus going to reveal about the secret, the mystery of the kingdom that the disciples did not know, that the crowds didn't know, that only certain people are going to know? Come back next week. Just kidding. Yes, come back next week. But if you don't understand this background, you're going to misinterpret all the parables in Matthew chapter 13. Because Matthew 13 is speaking to this essence of what the kingdom of God is. And I would say this, that the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom, is that the kingdom is going to invade this present age. It's going to come to human history in advance. It's going to come not in a cataclysmic events, but it's going to come quietly. It's going to come secretly. And God's rule and God's reign is actually going to come and begin quietly. How many of you would keep following Jesus if he said that? How many of you would keep saying to Jesus, I trust you? When everything you've been told your entire life is that it's coming in a cataclysmic, massive war. And Jesus says, no, the secret of the kingdom is that it's coming quietly. This is what the parables are all about. And this is who Jesus says, if you have ears, hear. If you have eyes, look. So Father, help us to be people who have those eyes to see and ears to hear that your rule and your reign is secretly and quietly ruling over all of this earth. And with eyes of faith and with ears of faith, we believe that one day that cataclysmic destruction and destroying of all the other kingdoms will happen when Jesus returns. But help us as we study these parables, be people who seek it, pursue it, run after it, enter it, obtain it, live for it. So that as a group of people together, we might show the world what that kingdom actually looks like. 
It's secret, but it's very visible in the life of God's people. So God, make us an outpost of that kingdom, a place where people would come and see tangibly, imperfectly, but a picture of the real kingdom that's actually ruling the world. So God, thank you for our time together and use your word and your spirit to form us and shape us to be your people. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.